0: So Lesh, uh, I hear that you are a terrible, inconsiderate, selfish human being and in fact had the temerity to go clubbing after Freedom Day. Is this true? Can you confirm or deny?
1: Daniel, I am a terrible human being but it has very little to do with the fact that I went clubbing on Freedom Day. Uh, yes, yes, I'm am, I am an inconsiderate <laughs> super spreader of, of COVID. I actually reckon anyone who was out clubbing on Sunday night has probably not been the biggest of rule followers in the last 12 months. And therefore, if there's any location with a high level of antibodies and herd immunity from natural infection, there's probably a nightclub. So I think it was the safest place I could have been that evening.
0: (laughs) Good to see you practicing harm reduction, Matthew.
1: Welcome to the Pin Factory, the Atoms with Issues podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, I'm the head of research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co host and head of programs, Daniel Pryor, and Rebecca Lowe, a former think tanker, a policy consultant, and PhD student. In this week's episode, we will be discussing Freedom Day, space exploration, and leveling up.
0: Freedom Day marked the reopening of clubs and the removal of most legal restrictions in England, but the government's advice has sought to highlight caution as the Delta variant drives a rise in cases alongside a rise in hospitalizations and deaths as well. From your perspective, Rebecca, how have people around you responded to the removal of legal restrictions?
2: I'm not a social scientist tracking opinion, so it's hard to say. I'm always cautious about extrapolating out from sort of you know what I've seen when I go down the pub or uh, what I see on Twitter because that's definitely all the real world I think polling is quite a blunt instrument for this kind of thing um I guess one thing I have sort of that's been in my mind quite a bit is that some of the like super smart data people did seem um pretty torn on the timing of the removal of restrictions so I don't know for instance like Oliver Johnson that Bristol math stats chap who seems pretty smart he said I even wrote this down he said this thing about if enough people believe it, it'll all be fine it may well not be but if enough people believe it won't, it might be. I tell Tom Whipple quoted this. A lot of people quoted this. But I guess I think probably the main thing I took from this is that anybody behaving as if this is super obvious either way is probably missing a lot of nuance.
0: And yourself, Matthew, obviously we talked about your clubbing adventures and the uh, hilarious introduction there. But uh, what, how did you respond?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I were to go back, based on my immediate surroundings, of course, everyone I immediately saw was acting extremely irresponsibly and, and going clubbing. But I don't necessarily know if that's the, the broader public experience of this. It still seems like the restaurants and bars and, and pubs in central London, for example, aren't much fuller than they were a, a week ago. Not that many more people are going into work. In fact, due to the pandemic, to some extent, a lot of people are off on isolation and it's actually much harder to, to go out in public. So it's not clear to me that Freedom Day is going to have a huge difference in terms of the propensity of of COVID to spread. We already knew it was... Uh, the Delta variant based upon the previous removal of restrictions, or maybe even without the previous removal of restrictions was spreading quite viciously through the community. It may be close to peaking. It may not be, it may increase again with all these new freedoms and nightclubs and whatnot, like it did Netherlands. I think, I think Rebecca's absolutely right. There's a lot of uncertainty here in terms of what happens next. And the government pushed towards reopening the scientific advice, I think was a bit mixed. It said, well, there's, there's two, I think there's two effectively two scenarios. One scenario in which, effectively that you have your exit wave we're already on the way to exit wave the delta variant made a wave at this point inevitable but thank goodness we had vaccines and as a result not a large number of people died comparatively let's say a typical flu year or something another reality though is that we've just massively sped up sped up the spread of this and the hospitals become overwhelmed in in the next few weeks just because there's going to be so many cases and so many unwell people now i think my view leans towards there's going to be a lot of cases but comparatively to earlier ways because we are vaccinated we, it's probably not going to be apocalyptically bad and on top of that if we didn't open up now in the summer there's a risk that when we open up in the future or potentially never open up for another six to 12 months there would just be these cases then anyway so there's, there's going to be some inevitable spread at this point and it's probably better to do it during a relatively quieter time over the summer when it comes to healthcare resources. I do, though, at the same head, there's a nagging sensation that says this is all too good to be true and everything's about to go terribly. And even if it doesn't happen in the next couple of weeks, potentially next winter, we'll, we'll see a bit of a spike in COVID, we'll see a spike in flus. And, and once again, the NHS will be under extreme pressure in not that different a way that it's often under extreme pressure during the winter season, but then you'll be these, these repeated calls for lockdowns and, and we'll end up back at square one effectively.
2: I think there's a genuine concern that a lot of the people who are going to be at the most direct risk. And that's therefore I don't just mean I don't mean risk of passing it on, although I do think that is that does pose a profound risk if you feel that you've been responsible for infecting someone you love or someone you don't know. I think that is a that's a serious cost. But a lot of the young people, for instance, who you talked about at the clubs, many of them haven't had the opportunity to access vaccines. Um and I think that is something that, you know. I think there are big moral questions about that. Whether it's about whether sixteen and seventeen-year-olds should be able to, you know, take on the liability and the personal responsibility to take a drug which hasn't necessarily been, you know, tested at, at that age range. Whether it's about you know parents having a bigger say about kids, or whether it was just about you know opening up AstraZeneca for younger people or allowing people to mix match their, the 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 vaccines that they take. Again, there are big scientific questions about all these things. I'm not a scientist, but I think that there could have been a more flexible approach, which potentially might have justified better the decision to completely open up at the stage at which it happened.
0: Matthew, you've mentioned already the the so-called ping-demic, and as someone who was late to this podcast because my train got cancelled as a result of a shortage of staff and also someone complaining about the lack of staff able to take out the bins that were employed by my council last night on Twitter, I think I'm well aware that there does seem to be quite a widespread issue with people being pinged and self-isolating due to these rising case numbers. Do you think that that's undermined the the idea of Freedom Day and that actually it's kind of made it far less of an opening up to what many people expected?
1: There was nothing more cosmically beautiful than the day that the, that the Prime Minister declares freedom is coming. He actually has to lock himself indoors, admittedly at, at Chequers, it's not the first, worst place to isolate, as well as the Chancellor because they have been pinged because the Health Secretary has come back with COVID 19. Once again, the second health secretariat is mm. many years coming back with COVID 19. I mean, yes, I think it, it has. And, and the ASI has done quite a lot of work in terms of projecting the number of people isolating, and, and our figures have been used quite substantially across the media. At a point earlier this week, we thought it was about 1.7 million. It might be a little bit higher now, it might be a little bit lower. A lot of people are now deleting the app. And the, the latest data out from, from NHS Digital is that you've got 600,000 people isolating in England as a result of the app. There's about another 400,000 people who are isolating as a result of being contacted by Test and Trace, Test and Trace, and that's about a week ago. So there, there's presumably much higher numbers now, and, and we'll have new figures on that shortly. But I, I think overall it, it does seem like it, we're almost in this kind of weirdly chaotic situation where, for example, Iceland for the first time is actually shut down stores, not because of COVID-19, but because of the government requirements of people to isolate. And the lack of flexibility is, and proportionality with who's required to isolate in the sense that I, I just don't know why we can't immediately say if you've been double vaccinated, isolate for two days, get a test. If you don't come down with symptoms, you know, off you go. And that, that would seem like a reasonable thing to do since we know it's just far less likely you're going to have COVID if, if you're double vaxxed and you should test positive relatively soon after that. Continue doing your lateral flow test every day or something. I think there is a proportionality lacking here and that's just causing these huge disruptions across the economy. And and I know quite frankly, putting people away for for 10 days Isolating is a pretty miserable thing to do for millions of people and, and we shouldn't do it unless it's absolutely needed.
0: And Rebecca, what are your thoughts on that, the idea? Should the government just stop requirements for quarantining if you're vaccinated or at least, as, as Matthew says, drastically reduce them and, and make them more proportional to the actual risk that they have?
2: So I think key to making has been making judgments about whether the policy decisions are justified and also making personal decisions about when to go out and do stuff um, is dependent on having really good, reliable information. And my main criticism of the government throughout this whole period has been uh, their lack of transparency, which at certain times I would say is go as far as not just misinformation, but disinformation. And I think that's, I mean, I think it's an absolute scandal. I could talk about this all day. But I think actually the Boris Rishi example plays into this because yes, whilst I agree that the app The current situation is the app certainly undermines the value of vaccines and testing. There's probably we could probably have more information to be able to make good choices ourselves about these things. So, For instance, there hasn't been good information about the rate of supply and there hasn't been very good public messaging about the distinction between case rates and and uh, the situation of 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 what what being infected means, making a distinction between people who are not vaccinated at all and people who've been single vaccinated. I'm sure that information is out there somewhere, but I certainly haven't seen it relayed very effectively in government messaging. And I'd say that the Boris Rishi situation, again, it's hard to know know, whether they specifically or some idiots around them in their comms department put out that initial message. But the problem is that there are probably good arguments to say a conditional approach in terms of certain people being allowed have exceptions there were good arguments for that kind of thing but that's not what i saw that they were trying to do rather they were trying to manipulate the situation and not only is that disrespectful and wrong it's recklessly short-termist who's going to trust reliable supposedly reliable information from the state if it's like incredibly obvious that they're lying to you
0: yeah, it's a strange situation where it's a free market think tank like the Adam Smith Institute leading the way on data about things like how many people are self-isolating. It doesn't really fill one with confidence. And that's part of the problem that we've had throughout the whole pandemic, that a lot of the time government statistics or data is just not as transparent or easily available or accessible as it needs to be for people to make those sort of rational decisions and have any kind of trust in, in the latest ever-changing government advice here and one of those areas that you know if i'm to put on my uh, my nudge unit behavioral economics hat here the government please don't daniel for the, for yeah, it's, it's not how i enjoy wearing i must say but i'm going to put it on for a, a, it's br- got a brief in it
1: makes you dumb as <laughs> soon as you put on that hat
0: <laughs> there's this issue with the the idea of making masks no longer mandatory do you think that that's the the kind of correct approach because on the one hand you know you you want to of obviously expend freedom and, and leave this down to personal choice but again with my extremely painful behavioral economics hat on i think sometimes it can be difficult especially when the advice and when you know it's not as accessible to people on you know everyday people on the street it might not be easy to tell the difference when you can and can't and when you should and shouldn't where you know you go into a train station and I'm still not sure, actually, whether I can wear whether I have to wear a mask in train stations. I don't think that I do, and I think it has to be just on the the trains themselves now for the moment. But there's kind of a risk here, isn't there, Rebecca, of having a, an approach that isn't as easily known to to people that they can't turn around and say, "Oh, here's where I wear a mask. Here's where I don't."
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see a world really in which people are making decisions based on their own kind of personal profile of risk, both in the sense of, you know, did I have a tickly throat this morning, therefore I'm not going to go out, or I'm not going to see my granny, but mm. I will a walk in the park. Whereas, you know, if I think I might potentially at some point, because I was in the office have been um, susceptible to catching something. So I think we need people to be able to make quite complex, differentiated um, judgments about this. But again, so one thing that's really frustrated me, I mean, many things have frustrated me about the lack of rival information, but one thing I rarely see, I mean, aside from the... A lack of information about the importance of ventilation which is just mental considering it's an airborne disease yet we're still seeing this covid theater but i'm sure you guys have talked about that a lot another thing which i haven't seen discussed so much is the difference between like a good mask and a really good mask or a good mask and a really rubbish mask I, there are some american doctors who are leading good campaigns about this stuff but i've seen really very very little messaging from the government my general view about this is the government thinks that people are stupid and that they've only got a very short attention span or capacity to take in information I think that's both wrong, and I think it's really patronizing offense. And I think in this instance, it's really dangerous because the difference, it may, it may in terms of like overall effect be a small difference, but marginally in terms of a relative difference between a good mask and a really, really good mask, that's massive. And when you're talking about something which has the risk of growing exponentially, that's really, really important. And if that information hasn't come from a reliable source and hasn't been made public, I think this is one of the, you know, the few obligations the state has in a time of crisis is to be a reliable source of information and it's to- we've seen a total state failure.
1: A moment that we can never forget at the start of this pandemic was the moment that Jenny Harris did this absurdist discussion with Boris Johnson about the effectiveness of masks early last March and made the absolutely unscientific, unproven claim that masks might actually increase your risk of infection because you're not gonna wear them properly. It's worth noting Jenny Harris, of course, has now been appointed the head of the pandemic fighting body. D- despite her consistent inability to correctly call things throughout this pandemic, really rewarding failure there. I think that that's quite indicative of this government's approach to masks. It became, uh, and very quickly forgotten, do not get a mask. The Advertising Standards Authority said advertising masks and saying they help prevent the spread of COVID-19 is false advertising and lies to scared people. Then it became you should wear a mask and then it became you must wear a mask and now Uh, it's confusingly become, you must wear a mask if your local authority or your train service decides. Now I'm kind of sympathetic to the fact that the government doesn't want to be responsible for this anymore and that if the government did at some point say this is not mandatory, there's a risk that it just goes on and on and on. I did think it was a little bit laughable that all the Labour Party could say throughout all this, even as cases were still increasing, well they're letting it rip and the real thing, the, the only thing we want is people to wear masks. I mean masks make a marginal difference, it's not the end of the world. It probably would, I think Rebecca's right, would have more effectiveness if people were better about which mask to wear. If you're vulnerable, you should probably only be wearing an N95, a, a full kind of filtration mask. That should be the messaging to, to vulnerable people. Go out, enjoy your life. But if you're in a supermarket or in an enclosed space, wear that rather than all these vulnerable people who are now going to isolate rather than being able to take their own risks in their life. I think Rebecca's absolutely right that we can we can have a more mature discussion around all these issues, but the government never seems that willing to do it. There was some news recently that they're going to start running a campaign about ventilation and about party about time after all this into the pandemic the most hilarious slogan is of course hands face face ventilation it's, it's like the, the forgotten add-on at the end when we know hands doesn't really do that much i mean face and space are nice but ventilation is key so the fact that your, your slogan went like that because it sounded a bit nicer when boris said it once apparently is just totally absurd
2: It's enough to make you some kind of conspiracy theorist. I've thought hard about why it could be that the government has doubled down and doubled down and tripled and trebled.
1: Now, Rebecca, there's two possibilities. There's always two possibilities. It's either a conspiracy is much deeper than you think or it is just pure idiocy and incompetence. And in this case, it is just pure idiocy and incompetence.
2: By conspiracy, I could include something like, is it just sunk costs? Is it that, you know, embarrassment sunk costs that they don't want to admit that they made these... I think we should make this thing embarrassment sunk costs where people, like, you know, continue doing something just because they don't want to admit something not rather not because they think they're going to lose out yeah I mean actually on the transparency point if I can be allowed a, a plug for a uh, a chapter I recently wrote in a book which has just come out edited by Avik Bhattacharya and Faye Nike called philosophy in a pandemic or pandemic in a philosophy I forget which way it is it's Bloomsbury academic press I wrote a chapter on um the government's uh, obligation of transparency and I looked specifically at the mask example I mean I was setting out a sort of general theory but the, my, my, my point really was to say you know if you've got the state saying um if, which has some reliable information about mask wearing and then it doesn't choose to pass that on in what instances could that be justifiable and obviously we had people suggesting it was to protect the mask supply we had people you know people on the extreme suggesting it's because they wanted old people to die so that healthcare spending would be would be reduced and they'd have more money to spend on things to get voted in again. I mean, these these arguments don't really make much sense. But, so, my my general argument is that manipulation is never a good reason um, for transparency. And I mean, I don't think that ends based arguments are sufficient alone anyway to justify policymaking. We may dis- we may disagree about that. But I ended by saying, you know, what if this was purposeful deception?
0: Uh, and just a final question on this topic and, and Freedom Day more. Broadly, we're hearing, at least in the papers today, that it looks like the prime Minister's heading for a defeat on the government's proposed COVID pass system for for large events, the kind of vaccine passport system. Do we think that this is something that's likely to happen, especially given that news? Or actually, are we, are we not going to be troubled with vaccine passports for for any of these sort of events?
1: I, I think the government is probably going to be surprised by the extent to which there is anger on the the Tory backbenchers. And if if Labour joins them, they'll have to dump the policy very quickly. I did wonder when they announced this, if their real goal was simply to just encourage young people to get vaccinated. Again, uh, using Rebecca's point earlier about is lying justified. No, it's not. Like putting out a putting out a policy idea that you don't think you're actually going to do because you want to try to manipulate people into getting vaccinated, I think it would, is a highly unethical approach to this. On the, on the more um, substantial question though, is should the government mandate vaccine passports? I mean, I'm not as apocalyptic about this as some privacy infringement. I think it can be done in a privacy protecting way. I am a bit uncomfortable about kind of a precedent setting. You know, are we a papers please society? I don't necessarily know if vaccine passports create that reality. But at the same time, I would prefer the government government didn't mandate it. I don't mind if private businesses wanted to do it. Um, I think the revealed preferences of private businesses and, and the people who go to them is that they don't really want it. Otherwise, you would have seen it in quite widespread use when clubs were reopened. So I don't know if I want the government mandating it, if it's not something that, that people ultimately want, because it's ultimately a, a question of danger to me and the people around me. You know, I was willing to go out clubbing without a vaccine passport. I think I would have slightly preferred if they did have a vaccine passport or a test-based system. But in, on net, I don't think people care enough to, to give up the activity and, and aren't passionate enough about it. Um and, and and having that kind of split in society is not necessarily a good outcome from all this.
2: Yeah, I mean I'd agree about you know, maybe this is a, a manipulative nitrogen incentive to get young people to get vaccinated. But I think the demand is actually, has actually been pretty high from what I'm, how I'm, as far as I'm aware anyway. But who knows? Because I said, you know, the point is this government is so ridiculously non-transparent and has shown itself to have no problem with this kind of manipulative approach, which I think is, is incredibly dangerous and short-termist as well as wrong, that um, I don't know what to trust. I'd say, I think probably, you know, taking a slightly sidestep like Matt... Um, I don't really have a problem with private businesses during a pandemic requiring visiting customers to meet certain conditions. I mean, you know, we can debate all day about what those conditions should be, but I think conditionality is is kind of baked into owning a private business in a free society. And similarly, I'm certainly okay with healthcare institutions, hospital care homes, et cetera, having conditions for their workers. I think that's definitely justifiable. I guess, though, the reason I'd say for this is like most people have got quite complicated views on, on freedom, but I guess core to my view are two things. One, that if freedoms are equally held in society then some of those freedoms are going to be inherently limited some of my freedoms are going to prevent you doing things and vice versa so some of them are going to be inherently limited and, and also i think if you think that there are normatively relative um, relevant values aside from freedom um regarding like the shape of society and so on and, and personally i think it's quite incoherent even if you think freedom is the most important value to so think that there are no other values i think probably much any moral framework you look at has other values baked into it even if people claim claim that they're not there and then at least some freedoms are going to be conditional. So basically, I think it's going to be morally relevant that my freedoms cost other people, including in ways aside from their loss of freedom. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable position for a classical liberal to hold. And I think on that kind of approach, it's definitely acceptable for private businesses, at least, to you know, require certain conditions, during, particularly during a time of cond- pandemic.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think that the, the kind of necessity of trading off freedom against some other values, even if those values are less... Uh, relevant in your kind of moral calculus is is just pretty much inescapable for any coherent way of of looking at the world and and how we should how we should govern society and how how we should run society and just on that that kind of finally before we move on I think you mentioned about the the manipulation side of things being amongst other things short-termist and I think for me that's one of the the key issues here is it's kind of like a boy who cried wolf but for the government where they'll constantly be doing these sort of things on the basis of oh you know even if we're not going to do vaccine passports at least it will encourage young people to get vaccines but as we've talked about in this section and I think shown quite effectively people aren't stupid they're going kind of to cotton on to this sort of thing they already have cottoned on to the numerous failures of, and kind of lack of transparency that uh, has dominated the pandemic in the UK and eventually they're just going to lose complete faith in any sort of government advice or at least they're going to be a lot more cynical whenever the government proposes a new COVID related policy or or even releases some new data about something and it it does really worry me that we are getting to the stage now where people just don't have any trust in it it doesn't worry me because I think they're wrong to it worries me because I think in any sort of decent society you should be able to have at least some level of trust and those that govern you.
2: I was just going to think it's particularly dangerous in a time of pandemic because even if you're the kind of person who thinks that collective action problems like, you know, dealing with with a pandemic are best solved by bottom-up solutions, when it's an immediate emergency, I think oftentimes it's necessary and certainly justifiable for the state to take a coordinating role in it. So you're going to need people to trust the state in terms of its, you know, provision of, of information, but as you say, that then that then has an impact on the rest of normal life when you want the state to take a lesser role. And the only way to get the state to take a lesser overbearing role in a time of emergency is to give people good information so they can make a choice for themselves. And in normal times, this is going to have a knock-on effect. This is disastrous. I think what this government has done is going to be seen for decades to come in a lack of trust in, in authority. I say this to somebody who is deeply skeptical and and you know of 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 many of the powers of the state that other people think are justified. Um, but because I'm not a total anarchist, I think there is some good the state can and must do. Uh, and I think this government has has just set back that cause <laughs> about 200 years.
0: Well, on that fantastically optimistic note, I think it's time to move on to our next discussion topic, which is space exploration and what free marketers should think about it.
1: Entrepreneurs Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson have made headlines in recent weeks after jetting off into space, while Elon Musk will shortly be on his way. But many have criticised these as vanity projects and claim money could be better spent on Earth. Rebecca, is space exploration a waste of money?
2: I don't think it's... I've got to say, I mean, I have to put my, you know be completely transparent here i love space i've loved space since i was a little kid i think it's exciting i think it's fantastic and i think it it, to me it sort of represents this amazing thing about human beings which is our capacity to recognize intrinsic value you know the value of things just because right um it's about achievement it's about it's about knowledge and it's also it also has has great ends as well that it can be brought about by space exploration i mean my defense policy friends tell me it's essential it's a it's part of the government upkeeping its obligations to protect us to make advances in you know military and medical technology there is those kinds of arguments
1: um yeah it kind of reminds me of the, the classic jfk point you know we don't go to space uh because it's easy but because it is hard and it will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills because that challenge is one that are we willing to accept and willing to put unwilling to postpone and one which we intend to win and there's obviously a bit of a cold war undertone there but even i think for humanity and you know, the Americans are best at this in terms of they're, they're a frontier society. And when they they got past their frontier and they got to the, the, the west coast, they, they needed a new frontier somewhere else to explore. And it became the, the universe and beyond. But I think that intrinsic need of humanity to to know what's out there. And if private entrepreneurs want to spend some of their high-known money on that, and um, there's in fact nothing wrong with it whatsoever. You know, Jeff Bezos has made billions of dollars not through some unethical behavior, but by providing us fast delivery on millions of products. Richard Branson has been a, a serial entrepreneur starting all sorts of different companies and Elon Musk has, has done all sorts of exciting things as well and Tesla's and saving the world when it comes to electronic cars and whatnot. So I, I think people's cynicism about billionaires going into space is, is totally uncalled for, especially since they're furthering our understanding of the universe. I think it's good and I actually much prefer it to see it than the state spending money on it and far less efficiently. I think the competition we're seeing in the, in the space race in the private sector is far beyond anything we, we could have ever done if it was just kind of state spending or if it was a lot less money.
2: I think it's so, what I also think it's quite disappointing when you see people criticising these. I mean, I've got no interest in the personal lives of billionaires. I don't know whether they're nice people, good people, any of those things. But I am interested, like you say, in the way in which private enterprise can, you know, it can, it, it can increase competition, drive down costs, you gain efficiency savings. And um, you can see, I suppose, in the way in which NASA used, you know, SpaceX, to take astronauts to the ISS, the way in which these things can interplay. Because it is, at least my understanding is that it's, you know, nobody's really getting into space. Private companies are advancing many capacities in terms of space progress, but nobody's really getting into space without large amounts of subsidy or bidding for government contracts, et cetera. But as more people get involved, this will become more possible. It becomes democratized. You know, if you watch the the Bezos launch the other day, they basically kind of you know toddled up the up the little um, steps, jumped in, was strapped in, took like 15 minutes, it had a bit of a holding phase. You know, it's almost like air travel. You can see, you could you could just sort of see, because it looked quite low tech, I'm sure it wasn't low tech, but it looked like just getting a ticket and getting on the plane. And if it's, you know, if it's private cash, which is going in, which as you say, will be more efficient, then this is going to open the opportunity up to many people. One final thing I'd say though, is I find it disappointing when people... know they want to they want to criticize these billionaires for various things and those those things that they want to criticize might be justified maybe it is the case that they they avoid tax illegally i don't know i haven't seen their accounts maybe it is that they treat their workers badly i don't know because i haven't been to the factories and but those are separate questions as to the important abstract question about whether somebody who has legitimately earned wealth can justifiably spend their money on these things and i think that's a really important question and it's one that gets lost when people just take the time to look at it in terms of the particular individual who they dislike,
0: I think for my money, the the question of private space exploration is extremely easy in my mind, and just a, it's a subset of people are doing what they want with their own private money, and we should not question what they would like to do. The, the issue is that in all of the cases of, of current private space exploration, and certainly all state exploration, there is a significant. Government involvement in terms of funding from taxpayers. Now, as someone who absolutely loves space, I think just like you, Rebecca, my instinct is to immediately go, "Yes, it's fantastic." And I think probably the biggest argument for me that actually justifies it, not just on free market terms, but I think just on being concerned with human well-being terms more broadly, is is actually this kind of long-term existential risk sort of argument. So, the idea that we need to develop space exploration technologies in order to develop resiliency and through future colonization and things like that. I think for for my money, that's the strongest kind of long-term argument for space exploration. Now, I think you can get into the weeds and and debate about whether or not the relative technological benefits of space exploration have been worth it. You know, you can think about, okay, well, what could have come from that money instead? What was the opportunity cost of, of spending for NASA during the Apollo program, for example? And I'm sure that they're a good case to be made on both sides. I'm, I'm not an expert in that area. But I don't think you even need to go that far. I think you just need to think, well, in the same way that if a giant meteor was heading towards Earth and would wipe out all of humanity, I think we'd be justified in spending an absolute ton of the planet's wealth on combating such a thing and trying to devise a solution. Mm. That meteor is probably heading for us very, very slowly in the next hundred, you know, thousand, hundred thousand years, et cetera. And therefore, we've got a very compelling case to think about the long term future of humanity and invest taxpayer money in exploration efforts. And
1: it's always worth remembering that, scientifically at least, the Earth is not forever. So if right. humanity is to be forever, we, we will need to be a, a multi-planetary species. But, but talking to infinity and beyond, Rebecca, you're working on a paper for the ASI at the moment about the, the question of privatising space. I was wondering if you could tell us w- what the current state is when it comes to property rights in space. Uh, will we go and colonize the moon or Mars? Who's going to own that land that is... Richard Branson, Elon Musk, or whoever else are, are putting down uh, their bases at.
2: Yeah, so uh, so I mean, if I just give a brief overview of some of the stuff I've been reading, I should I should say that I've been thinking about this from my point of view of my sort of interest in in moral property rights and to a lesser extent morally justified legal property rights. So I'm not a I'm not a lawyer, but rather I'm thinking about these things sort of normatively from a you know rights space kind of Lockean liberal point of view, not least because Locke has been incredibly influential in terms of um, how we think about property, both theoretically and, and practically, but I'm very grateful to you guys because it's given me a chance thinking about space because it's, it's one of my favorite things, but also to think about some practical applications of this highly theoretical stuff. So in terms of current space law, my understanding is, and I still need to speak to some more of my international lawyer friends about this, but most important seems to be the 1966 UN Outer Space Treaty. So this is kind of the vanguard of, of space regulation. Over hundred countries, I think are currently party to it, including the, the major space players. Um, in terms of property matters, it focuses on uh, how I think I've got a line from it here, how the exploration and use of outer space should be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries, and shall be the province of all mankind. It has a lot of that JFK language about, you know, about peace. And also it famously stands against national appropriation of space. And that's the thing that people in various countries are, are kind of pushing against the, this point around appropriation, really. So America, for instance, has been pushing on this through national legislation, also executive order under Trump, um, focused on enabling. They, they talk about a lot about the kind of commercial exploration and exploitation of space resources. They talk about not being signatories to the Moon Agreement, which was kind of a follow up to the OST. But I think various other big players aren't really signed up to that either. And then, of course, NASA brought out these Artemis Accords, which is supposedly a kind of grounded in the in the OST
1: yes so I think there's this interesting issue at the moment where effectively space is owned in the common and and from a practical perspective that's from a you know economics 101 point what are you going to bother doing, why are you going to bother going out into space and trying to mine if you don't think you can actually own the resources in any meaningful way? But even in the shorter term, of course, they've got this issue about space junk. You've got a tragedy of the commons where you've got old satellites and we're setting up thousands more satellites and all these little bits and pieces from things that are previous spaceships or whatever else just kind of floating around in the inner or the outer atmosphere of earth and crashing into each other and because there's no because no one owns it there's no incentive to make sure it's it's not misused and it's kept clean so we've got a classic tragedy of the commons problem in it in itself that we're over exploiting what is um, to some extent a limited property which is that that outer atmosphere
2: I think one of the really interesting things about thinking about space in terms of these, these questions is that obviously space policy and progress intersect with kind of ongoing matters of law and politics and economics. So one of those is like kind of jurisdictional, you know, in what jurisdiction are the planets? The other is like responsibility, as you say, for junk, who arbit- who's the arbiter in, in terms of dispute and war. But I think the thing I'm probably most interested in are these sort of underlying moral questions in the way that space almost gives us a kind of, you know, blank thought experiment. I like to tease Matt because he's Australian and say that, you know, space is a genuine case of Terra Nullius in the way that uh, Australia.
1: <laughs>
2: and, and yeah, so to my mind, the most interesting of these is around, you know, if, if you, Daniel or Matt or I, or a firm that we're involved in or a country or a group of people want to, you know, want to own a bit of the moon or own a bit of an asteroid or, or a space. I mean, I know you've written interesting stuff about, you know, landings, uh, with airplanes uh, um, and how you portion off sort of areas of, of, of space on earth. How do, you, how, do you, how do you go about doing that in, in space? And how can we do this in a morally justifiable way? Because um, certainly the interesting thing about thinking about this from a lock-in point of view is that many people say things like, well, this is terribly dependent on like pedigree arguments and, and history and what went first. And, you know, it, all of the initial acquisition was totally unjustified. Therefore, we can never come up to a solution. And that's basically where you get to. Well, we've got a chance to try and do this afresh. And this is, you know, it's super interesting and exciting.
0: I'm I'm so glad that I'm not the the only person on the planet who gets excited about space travel because of the potential for like giving the Lockheed Proviso another go without any of this initial acquisition justifiableness, you know. I, I've had exactly the same thought that's, that's really just So, so what me. is
1: more not to completely you know break break your paper down where are you you currently thinking Rebecca in terms of how we, we should allocate um, space rights let's say you know I had the ability to to put something down on the moon or I found an asteroid with some very valuable resources on it of course it would be expensive for me to bring back to earth but I think I can get it you know justified it's just cheap enough to do um what kind of right would I have to the property that I've found there?
2: Okay, so I go back one tiny step, and I think there are kind of two key problems to address. Well, first is a kind of normative question addressing like what forms and models of ownership are justified, and that's a kind of massive question worthy of a, a book longer than Locke's Second Treatise. And second is a is a is a kind of practical question about you know how are you going to get people to abide by these justified forms and models of ownership once you've determined what they are. And a key problem there is 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 really the the kind of international agreement approach, which. People have gone by so far, and and which really sort of seems like the only solution. They only those those accords, those accords and agreements only restrain their signatories signatories, and then really only the ones who are who who behave in accordance with it. So you kind of got a free rider problem, which is a which is an issue already. So I've I've had some thoughts for the paper around how you might get beyond this in terms of um, international accord. Uh, I can go into them, but it's probably a bit too, bit too dry for the podcast.
1: We can read the paper uh, or discuss it more. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. um, and then you've got, you come back to this uh, sort of interesting normative question about what the model is that's justified in the forms of acquisition. I I mean, again, I'm working on the details of it, but basically it's a kind of, what I'm proposing is a kind of Georgist kind of renter model. for well, the moon as a kind of test case, in which case people wouldn't really own it in the sense of having any kind of permanent ownership. I've got a view about kind of Lockheed and Liberal property rights, that conditionality and limits are baked into this. And I think it's probably hard really to think of any real model of private property that doesn't have some kind of conditionality and limit baked in. And I've kind of got quite an idealistic view that potentially it could be the case that if you rent and your money goes into some fund, again, you're going to have to, you know, the international lawyers are going to have to come up with who you know, who deals with that fund. But if that fund was the kind of fund which enabled other people greater chances to be able to go into space and own stuff in space themselves, then I think you might get rid of around some of these kind of first-come, 1st first serve problems, which have been, which have so plagued the, the lock-in approach to property.
0: I think just just following up from that, the kind of first-come, 1st first serve problem, I don't just see that in terms of um, some people... Just random people get to the party first and get to end piece of the moon. I see it as an issue when it comes to the fact that at least historically, and I'm glad this is becoming less the case now. Space travel has been a largely national um, enterprise rather than a, a private or a firm based one or an individual one. And my worry is that the fact that if that does continue to be the case, and as you say, the kind of international agreements become the the key thing to go to as opposed to say, you know, when two companies in different jurisdictions get into conflict, they tend to have a court that can resolve that in international law. It's kind of the the David Friedman stuff there. If we carry on with the the national based approach, then we're going to have a lot of very bad incentives that come along with governments effectively being the ones that are exploring, managing and acquiring property in space as opposed to firms and individuals so my hope certainly is that these forerunners that are really coming into space you know virgin spacex blue origin etc they're going to pave the way for a truly private space exploration once we get those sort of commercial incentives in place and and once there are enough companies in the market and costs come down enough we don't have to subsidize it as much and there can be that separation between some of these companies and state funding, then actually we're going to see a far more effective and just, I think, management of property in space. Well, from a universe
1: of privatisation of the space race to a
0: universe of levelling up,
1: let's move on.
0: Speech last week, the Prime Minister began to spell out the details of the government's levelling up agenda. He promised a renewed focus on local devolution and that greater investment in deprived areas of the UK would not come at the expense of London and the Southeast. Now, we often talk about the levelling up agenda in the ASI office as to whether we should you know, lean into it, whether it's something that even has any sort of coherence to it. And in this speech, critics noted in various media outlets, the speech was very light on specific policy proposals other than general talk about things like devolution. Uh, Rebecca, do you have a good understanding of what levelling up actually means in practice or is it still in your mind one of these vague kind of buzzword terms?
2: So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I totally agree that the, the speech, I read it and I thought it was um, aside from it seeming just to be very stream of consciousness, it was almost like reading really- mm. I think there was like one full stop in the whole thing. It was very policy light. I mean, there was a lot of promised spending, unsurprisingly, as we've come to expect from the government. Um, And there was was some nice stuff about, you know, the value of education and technology, but there's very little concrete stuff. So, and I do think a problem with this, as you intimate, is that leveling up has become a very kind of flabby phrase. People, particularly politicians, use it to mean all kinds of things. I guess, my guess is it's supposed to mean something like, I think I even wrote down what I thought my vague definition would be, something like ensuring all... People in all local areas get the basics of what they need from the state in order to ensure potential is unlocked, something like that. But part of the problem is, I agree, if they keep using it in a flabby way, that will get anything of value in there will get lost, if it hasn't already.
1: Yeah, fundamentally, the reason why... The leveling up speech was a vacuous speech is because leveling up is a vacuous concept that needs to be thrown in the dustbin of history as quickly as possible but unfortunately this government is absolutely obsessed with it and all boris can seem to get out of it is just pissing a bit of money around the place i mean it's it's bloody Blairism on steroids it's it's total absurdity and i i've honestly just had enough of leveling up and the fact that we're gonna have to go through like three more years of this absolute total garbage is just infuriating uh, and every single lobby group saying that their thing is going to level up. And I'm sure we're going to do it inevitably as well, because it's, it's such a, a temptation to, <laughs> to feed into this ridiculous agenda. And the fundamental issue with leveling up is that it is economically impossible. It is, it is just against the laws of science, more or less. Um, the reason why you have regional inequality in the UK, if, if you can make some arguments about lack of government services or whatever else. But the, the fundamental reason why is because, um, of amalgamation effects. When when people come closer together, when you have more scale, things are more efficient, people are more productive. It's something like every time you double the size of a city, it gets incomes increased by 15%. Power lines go down by 15%. You know, healthcare improves. You, you just get more in scale. That's why humans have been bought drag towards cities for for the last few centuries and when you try to push back against gravity you're inevitably going to fail so i think the government's ultimately setting itself up for an agenda that's not going to work uh constantly people laughing at them because they're unable to define what in the world this agenda means and at some point it'll just drop off our radar and with everyone a bit disappointed and politically it'll just be a total mess
0: now tell us what you really think about leveling up, Matthew. That's uh, oh. quite quite a robust uh, critique of the concept of leveling up there. Rebecca, do you think that there's any hope of rehabilitating this with a in a more free market lens? Is there a, a free market version of leveling up, and is it going to come out of the Adam Smith Institute in the next six months or so? Stay tuned.
2: I think if not. If not, if Matt's got anything to do with it. <laughs> I'd say if I were if I were trying to be if I was trying to be kind, I'd say something like. I think free marketeers should have an interest in how taxpayer money is spent, even if they think a particular instance of it is unjustified. And beyond that, I'd say, it's sort of similar to something I said previously, that I kind of think that various forms of like equality and interest in equality are baked into any moral framework that has a central interest um, in freedom, um, even if that's a very narrow focus on freedom. So even if you're not into say, you know, distributional equality regarding stuff, you probably recognize the value or even the right to equal respect And I think, you know, I can find a way in which that's relevant to what I see as coherent notions of levelling up. In terms of what the government is actually doing, there was a line in the speech about levelling up can only be achieved with a strong and dynamic wealth-creating economy, which sounds more in line with the kind of thoughts of those of us um, who worry a lot about top-down statist approaches. But that is kind of picking one line out of many. If I were going to coin a phrase, I'd say it's kind of picking a winner. um, And we're not in favour of that. And I would also be concerned about the underlying question of, you know, how it is you bring about that wealth creation. And I've got to say, I'm yet to be convinced that the current government is going to be hands off about that.
0: Yeah, I think from, from my money, the kind of best way that of rehabilitating this, we often talk at the ASI, our definition of neoliberal, hinging on the fact that free markets are very good at creating wealth, but not always the best at distributing it such that everyone has, you know, the basics, the basic necessities in life to, to get on well. And I think that that can be applied to to kind of regional inequality. You can accept the fact that London and Southeast are, for the agglomeration effects that Matthew mentioned, basically always going to be more productive in terms of creating more wealth and more economic growth than some other areas of the UK. That doesn't mean that you should not care about those other areas of the UK and you should you know redistribute in a way that I think makes sense. The thing is, though, that ultimately is done on an individual level as opposed to a regional level but the regional aspect of it is to me as much of a a kind of political talking point as it is uh, a valid concern
1: Part of you can redistribute money, and we've been redistributing money uh, to poor parts of the UK for a very long time. You can't redistribute status, though. And that's where a lot of this comes down to. People in these areas feel like they're not listened to, their concerns aren't taken into account. It's not that they want to live in London uh, and they they, want to necessarily just all about income and finances. This is where actually I think the, the, the Tories don't even fully understand why they won the election. They think they won the elections. People are economically left behind, and it's true that some of these people are economically left behind. But more fundamentally, they feel like the areas just aren't getting the respect, and that their careers and the things that they do with their lives don't get the respect that they that they think they deserve. And that is very hard to redistribute status, more or less. And you could you can spend a bit of money around, but it's not going to achieve anything. I mean, I think you you can and should, as you're saying, uh, be very focused on. Um, in, in ensuring individual social mobility and there's a lot of different policies I think you do if you want individual social mobility versus if you want regional equality and, and I think that I'd like to see the Tories go back to fo- focusing more on how do we ensure everyone at every part of the country has the same opportunity to succeed and that doesn't necessarily mean staying where they currently are in fact usually it, it often might mean moving and that says a lot about housing and planning just making it easier for them to move where they're going to be more productive is what's actually going to level them up individually.
2: I'd say two things. One, just touching on that point previously about the regional level. I mean, the regional level is a total fiction. In the uk it's not in not in all countries but there's just there's not historically culturally in terms of economic geography I mean, even the northeast where i'm from and which I do, daniel certainly knows um it's it's you know there is a lot of kind of you could see some kind of cultural identity but it's not strong enough to make it a region you've got massive difference within and between and yet we've seen you know successive governments talk about localism and give some faux sense of why well, I, I like to call it focalism really rather than localism because it's completely nice. false and and also, it generally is. To, they're talking about the regional level anyway, which is non-existent. It's a complete structure.
0: I find that that comment that you made, Matthew, about the it's not so much the economic left behind, or it's not just the economically left behind. It's the loss of respect or, or feeling as though you're you're not respected or, or listened to by the central government. That kind of comes into the the one policy area that Boris did arguably focus on or give some detail on in, in his speech, which was local devolution. Now, on the one hand, I can see how that, you know, giving more people control over the decisions that made in their local area, that can restore a sense of respect and and being listened to. But on the other hand, it's not the same thing as having Westminster listen to them, right? It's not saying, oh, central government's going to listen to you more and prioritise your concerns more in your region than they have been in the past. It's that, all right, you kind of deal with your own stuff more now and nothing really will change on the central government angle.
1: The the advantage with devolving power, I prefer the word decentralizing power, is that it does empower people to take control of their their local area in a much more direct way. We might not always like practically what they do with that power. And I think this is something that free marketers often struggle with, which is, oh, if we if we devolve this power, decentralize this power, they might do something a bit socialist. Well, you also might do something about socialist at a central level. So you've got always got that issue with any kind of democratic framework. And then you lay laid down, obviously, the the arguments against democracy from, from, from free marketers and libertarians and, and wanting institutions that limit democracy. My, my view is that, and very much backed up by the academic literature, you get better decision making the closer it is to the people who are impacted by it. And the UK is an outrageously centralised country, way beyond... Uh, practically almost anywhere else in the world, just with this unitary Westminster system. And there have been these efforts, these very haphazard efforts to decentralise. Our colleague, Matt Cochrane, will hate them because they've increased kind of regional nationalism within Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. But more fundamentally, if we can focus on England for a second, you've got all these different mayors with all these different powers and all these different setups. It's all very confusing and there's not much buy-in and we're choosing regions that don't necessarily people identify with. And so I think the challenge... Practically, when trying to manufacture decentralization, and I'm sure Rebecca's got a lot of views on this as well, is effectively linking the identity to the the, the, the area of power. And I don't know exactly what that is in the UK. I'm, I'm I don't I'm not an expert on you know regional uh, differences in, and local understandings or whatever. But there's got to be a better way to do it, and more, obviously also a more consistent way to do it, so that's better to explained and understood
2: yeah you know I also prefer the term uh, decentralisation and i am probably the only thing I love more than space is uh, decentralisation and this is both for its typical good effects, which as you know matt says um, there's strong acad- um, academic economic literature on this so um in terms of increased economic efficiency growth opportunities both locally and nationally from genuine decentralisation, which I'll get into in a second, but also for, i think what it represents, which is subsidiarity um which is kind of the decision should be made at the lowest possible level, not just because that might be efficient, and in fact, sometimes it might be inefficient, but because it's an obligation, it's about autonomy and respect and skin in the game. And I think that's where we get this sense of, of equal respect. It's about saying that local people, oh yeah, remember the EU tried to define subsidiarity in terms of efficiency, and I think this is totally wrong, at least certainly if you hold a kind of Aristotelian notion of this in which it's, it's, it's tied to, tied to, tied to freedom, really, I think. Um, but I say, to my mind, the real problem with the, the so-called devolution that we've seen, which largely is just these, you know, metro mares standing on the soapboxes, they haven't really got any power, so it's just whoever shouts the loudest from for a bit of cash from Westminster, is that you've seen a decoupling of spending and revenue raising. And again, all of the economic literature suggests that fiscal decentralisation is really key here, and that when those things are decoupled, you get worse effects. So if you have genuine um, fiscal decentralisation, so you get revenue raising powers which are devolved alongside spending powers you get you know more overall and local economic growth you get better matching of services to local needs and preferences as Matt said greater efficiency greater competition for, um, advantage of experimentation and um, increased productivity and tax-based growth now one of those things I think competition is one of the reasons some people are opposed to decentralization because they think ah, oh, well you know you're going to get this kind of um, race to the bottom
1: people might do something different across a different part of the country
2: yeah. <laughs> exactly exactly and then it's not going to be equal in the sense that we understand equal and then we'll
1: have to redistribute it to people in order to make it equal and it's all right. a, they, don't, like they don't think
2: that people can be trusted to make their own you know make their own choices about things or to specialize in things
1: so they're thinking, yeah that's true actually i don't think people can be trusted to make their own <laughs>
0: <laughs> well my kind of my my question for all this is what is the unit that you you decentralize to and what's the kind of criteria a, g- a genuine question. Yeah. What's the criteria you decide whether it is on that a local level or county level? You know, it's quite a hard thing to to measure the relevance of particular identities to, to people. Right. I'm sure it's possible to make a proxy through, you know, a survey evidence you simply ask people do you feel more British or UK do you feel more like you're from Essex or from England I know I'd certainly say Essex in that one but it's not it's not always easy so we need we need Essex nationalism Essex control Essex nationalism I'm not sure if the thought fills me with pride or dread I think a mix of both I think Daniel
1: you will someday make a brilliant president of Essex and you need to start talking yourself down
0: Wow, you're calling me a politician. That is the most insulting thing you could do on this podcast, and I appreciate it very much. <laughs> well, I think we're probably coming to uh, to the close of this episode of the Pin Factory, but... Uh, on that note, and uh, discussing me being the, the president of Essex, I think that's a really good point to end things on. So thank you very much for listening along at home. And my name Daniel Pryor. I've been alongside my co-host, Matthew Lesh. And we've been joined by Rebecca Lowe today as well, which was a fantastic chat about lots of things that I love, like space and uh, lock-in property rights. So thank you very much for coming along to that. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and we will see you next week.